Hello and welcome to WMQ&A, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. If you can hear the crowd in the background, that's because I'm recording this week's intro at the Hamilton Mall in Maze Landing, New Jersey, where I am tabling at Level Up Entertainment's free comic book day event. I'm actually just a couple hours away from hosting the first ever live WMQ&A panel, and hopefully if everything works out with the audio, you'll be able to hear that very soon. But this week, on this episode, we're talking to writer Leah Williams, whom you may know from this year's X-Men Gold Annual, which featured an Excalibur reunion as well as the first appearance of Brian and Megan Braddock's hyper-intelligent talking baby Maggie. Leah also has a story coming up in Volt's cult classic anthology, as well as some other upcoming projects yet to be announced. She's also pretty great at X-Men Twitter, so if you're not following her at MyMonsterIsChic, you are missing out. Something else you might not want to miss out on is some of the content we've got up right now at WMQComics.com. We just wrapped up our celebration of the non-Marvel Cinematic Universe Marvel Cinematic Universe with guest essays on Big Hero 6 by Matt Lazowitz, the Tom Jane Punisher movie by Will Nevin, and the Incredible Hulk Returns TV movie by Rob Lynch, all of whom are past and future guests of this podcast. We also take a look at the past few months of changes over at Valiant Comics and how they affect their just-launched Harbinger Wars 2 crossover. We spoke with new executive editor Joe Illich about those things and more, so check that out over at the site. In the meantime, here's me and Leah. My guest this week co-wrote the X-Men Gold Annual featuring an Excalibur reunion and has a young adult novel called The Alchemy of Being 14. But if you ask X-Men Twitter, she might best be known as Maggot's number one fan. It's Leah Williams. Leah, thank you so much for being here. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm just going to start by giving the people what they want. Uh, I put up the call for questions (laughs) uh, earlier today on Twitter and a friend of the show, Batman's Bookcase, hi Zach, asked, uh, can you please go into great detail on what makes Maggot the X character most in need of a comeback? Happily. And I've been thinking about this all day because I saw that question come in. Um, So I am baseline very fond of the gross mutants like all of the morlocks any any mutant that doesn't pass for human has a disfiguring power or something you know truly grotesque Mm -hmm. i i feel for them because you know in any other canonical work this would follow their existence would follow the conventions of body horror Mm -hmm. but in the x universe they get to be heroes they get to save the day and you know, use their dis- disfigurements, like it becomes their superpower, their ability. So I especially love Maggot because um, his superhero ability is that his digestive system is sentient and mad powerful and outside his body. Like it's crazy and I love it. I love the character. And I think he's had so much bad stuff happen to him um, between, like, Genosha and the Weapon X program and, you know, his maggots getting separated. And, uh, yeah, I, I feel for him. And he's still alive. It's canon. So it's it's time for him to get the spotlight he's always really deserved. Where, where was the last time we saw him? Was it Uncanny 600? Was he, like, a background character or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there was there was an issue when he was seen as a background character during a just huge march, um, and then I think even later than that, even he was spotted at a party, a Hellfire Club party in New York. So, and both times he only had one of his slugs. 
there was um i don't know if you're i don't know if you've ever read the fallen angels mini from the 80s but uh there was a character whose whole thing was he had these two mutant lobsters don and bill and one of them got they they too got separated and i always kind of think about that when i think about maggots uh, slugs oh i haven't read that i i clearly need to though because I, I don't know. I just like that story. I like the potential mm-hmm. of a reunion in it. Uh, you mentioned the gross Morlocks, and uh, the, the the first story that came to my head was uh, there was an issue of Uncanny. It's like, I don't know, 1990 or so, where it's like Jean Grey and Forge in the Morlock tunnels, and Mask gives Jean tentacles. Oh, I thought he gave Callisto tentacles. Yeah. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. Um, so Mask is super gross, and I I like him too. Um, doesn't Callisto still have tentacles because of Mask? It, I'm pretty. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, whole lot of body horror stuff going on yeah. anyway. But um, yeah, that's that's another thing that even though I don't like Mask as mm you know, a person. Um, I like him as a character just because it is so dynamic and the limits of his abilities are just, you know, what he can do is really astounding and so so ripe for some real, real good, gross body horror storytelling. Um, was was Maggot your uh, uh, peak X-Men era? Um... That's a good question. I don't think so, actually. I I came to it pretty late um, because, you know, I started getting into comics um, later in the game. So by that point, those were already like, you know, Maggot was reviled. Everybody hated this era. <laughs> like, I would say around 19... 19- 97, you know, late 90s X-Men after the big boom, their sort of heyday in the early 90s died down. Um, And maybe that was part of the reason why I was so drawn to them after the fact, because I was like, why does everybody hate these guys? It's not fair. (laughs) Okay, these are mine now. (laughs) It it was it was a very strange era because it was like I'm, I'm kind of like thinking like after Lobdell left. So it's that like maggot, marrow, Cecilia Reyes period that, you know, I, I guess I always kind of thought of it as the dark times between Lobdell and Morrison, but. Well, you know, Lobdell, yeah. he created maggot. Right, and, with Joe Mad, yeah. Yeah, and then wrote Cecilia Reyes. Um, I love her too. I love her, her origin story. Um, and, but, but yeah, I, I agree. I think it was post- Lobdell when it maybe lost some of the I guess magic that had come with all of these gross new weird mutants and we were left with who would have been like Beak and and Marrow and Maggot of course Mm -hmm. and X-Man trying to think sorry Adam X oh yeah uh, yes (laughs) Um, you know, it's funny we're mentioning all these characters. Uh, Jordan White, the uh, the, the new X X Men editor, 
tweeted a poll the other day looking for fans' favorite obscure X-Men, and despite being listed with Maggot and Adam X, the extreme sage one. I know, and the thing is, I would have voted for her if uh, if Maggot hadn't been on the list because she is super compelling as well. And I actually had a talk with Jordan about this at um, C2E2 in Chicago recently mm-hmm. where – you know, like I, I had just met Jordan for the first time and congratulated him on becoming the new senior X-Men editor. And we were just talking about comics and, and mutants and stuff. And um, he, you know, brought up his love of Sage and, and kind of, you know, what what she has to offer that he's always wanted to see. So it was really exciting to see that poll go up because I would love to see that had Adam X on it too, right? Um, yes. I would love to see any of these guys come back in any capacity. Have you uh, have you broached your maggot pitch to Jordan yet? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, only only on Twitter uh, because somebody else mentioned it and then tagged Matt Rosenberg in it and then X-Men Twitter came and they were like no this is Leah's <laughs> and they started tagging me in it and I, and I I just you know came forward and I was like yes I, I do have a maggot pitch um ready whatever you guys are but of course like the only people who I don't know I need to stop tweeting about maggot so aggressively because there's only about six of us who would actually want to read you know a like devastating story with maggot like a very epic beautiful tale um and then everybody else in the x office is probably just like haha anyway (laughs) (laughs) um so what what other uh comics shaped your your early fandom oh good question um I mean, for me, it was definitely all of the X titles from the start. Mm-hmm. I was super drawn to just the concepts of mutants in general and how, you know, these individuals were taking something they were being alienated for and using it to empower themselves to help others. I don't think there was like a stronger narrative I could have connected to. Um, you know, at, at certain points in my life. So it was definitely that. And then from there I expanded outward into Marvel territory just because I needed a fix and, um, was reading X-Force and X-Factor and, um, all of those things. I think one of the singular most formative, I would say comic events would be, the apocalypse solution was that the one that was the one after right right after house of m where apocalypse comes back yes turns gambit into a horseman yes okay yeah um and apocalypse is a kid ah uh, yeah yeah oh, oh, oh yeah Un- the uncanny x-force all right got it yes yeah yeah so it was uncanny x-force the apocalypse solution and i'm i'm still haunted by that one i i think about that all the time it it just ended so poignantly yeah i mean that, that was i mean that was a chilling story that was a bunch of guys arguing about whether they should kill a kid <laughs> yeah and you know not to like also bring dc into this but 
tales like All-Star Superman and mm-hmm. other things that are sort of meta and examine superhero identity and what it means to be a superhero and what they really contribute and what the downfall is and the kind of morality that they have to hold themselves to, the standards for it. I get really into that. Like Tom King's The Vision. Oh, oh my God. Yes. Oh my God. It, it, I mean, that's basically the rule with Tom King. Anybody, anytime somebody mentions like Vision or Mr. Miracles, the, the correct response is just, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Miracle as well. Well, he's so good at like the deconstructive superhero thing where you give him a body of work, a superhero that will have, you know, gosh, 60 to 80 years of, of history, of storytelling, and he'll take the whole thing and distill it down and, and find the weak points and write a story about it. And it's just excellent every time. Absolutely. Um, so you're originally from Mississippi. Uh, yeah. What was the comic scene there like for you growing up? Was there, did you have a shop in your hometown? Were you kind of reliant on like a spinner rack in a pharmacy? Like how far did you kind of have, <laughs> have to go to get your fix? So... Yeah, I there was no comic scene where I grew up. We had no comic shop. Um, I I started out with the spinner rack at James's Food Center, our one local grocery store, and I would beg my parents for. Um, they didn't even have like, you know, single issue comics. They had Archie and Jughead digests, sure. and mm-hmm. I would just beg my parents for them when I, we were in the checkout line. Um, so that's that's my official start. And when I say I didn't get to comics, get really into comics until later, it was college. Um, and it was actually my college roommate, Sandy Pletikosik, who was a huge comics fan. And um, at that point, like we were in film school, so we were surrounded by boys and kind of male culture stuff. And I had this really ignorant notion about comics being a boy thing. But then once I started living with Sandy, she was like, oh, no, that's dumb here. And she she gave me Watchmen. (laughs) (laughs) She started me on Watchmen. You want to start reading comics? Here's the densest material available. (laughs) Yeah, but even still, it was the right choice because within... I don't know, six pages, I was just like, what? Nobody told me comics could be like this. And it drastically altered the course of my life. I just voraciously devoured everything in her collection and then at the library. And then I started working in a comic book shop and getting really heavy into the fandoms. And it's it's been one one thread since Sandy connecting me to writing for Marvel now. That's, that's beautiful. Um, having worked in, how long, uh, how long were you in uh, comics retail? Almost two years. Uh, um, did that perspective kind of being on the other side of the counter, dealing with the reader directly every week, you know, do you feel like that's informed you as a writer as, as far as kind of, I guess, knowing, knowing what people want? I would say not as much as being really active in the fandoms has informed what I write. I I came to Marvel from kind of a ground level perspective of being a comic book fan where I was writing X-Men fan fiction and shitposting on Tumblr about Marvel characters and just like really densely and, and 
deep into the fandom wank and um that is is still something that i'm i'm a part of like i i don't i try not to participate as much now because there's a huge difference in me before writing for Marvel, like getting heated when somebody insults a character that I love and I like start arguing with them and, and me having the platform that I do now and writing for Marvel, arguing about a character that I love, like it's, it's very different. So I try to not interact as much. Um, but it's, it's still content that I, I love looking at and I still read fan fiction and write it and, you know, I, I participate, but quietly and anonymously. I, I've, noticed, I've noticed on Twitter, you've kind of been going through a lot of your old uh, uh, posts lately, uh, kind of re-upping some things from last year. What are you kind of, uh, of seeing in, in 2017, uh, Leah, versus, versus now? Um, I can't remember how... I, so I started doing that yesterday uh -huh. because, um, well, Jordan follows me on Twitter now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was going through all of these old posts um, just to prove to some some new followers, not just Jordan, but um, some fandom people that, you know, like, you, you can recognize your own on the internet when you look at what they're posting about and what they're sharing and what they're liking. And, um, especially if they're like LGBT like me and we're all just knee deep in the fandom discourse, like, you know, you, you can recognize your own. So I, I kind of wanted to impress some of my new followers and be like, look, my, my love is earnest. It is authentic. It goes this deep and it's weird. <laughs> So I started trotting out all of my old mutant thirst tweets. Uh, yes, my, I think my favorite was uh, Night Nightcrawler as was a blueberry gymnastics daddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love my blueberry gymnastics dad. <laughs> I love writing Nightcrawler. I love Kurt just as a character, everything that he's done and the way that he interacts with people. He's so compassionate and intelligent and brave he's he's such a great character and i can't wait to write him again it's it's funny i guess you know 40 years of you know you think about when he was introduced and and you know immediately being chased by the you know the the town mob he's so used to how people react to him and you know i was reading the uh reading the x-men gold annual today and it's just like he meets baby maggie you know the baby that talks and everybody's just like oh yeah well this you know this is excalibur so weird stuff happens like this we're all used to it it's tuesday <laughs> immediately just launches into a philosophical uh you know uh dialect with with maggie about the the nature of being i yeah it made me so happy to write that um because that was genuinely what i envisioned happening um with a hyper intelligent baby i and it it went from my head to the page to print pretty much unaltered the interaction of Kurt and Maggie where you know she reacts to him differently because he's this you know would be the first time that she's seen somebody that doesn't look like her parents um and it's it's a place of genuine curiosity not 
you know, hatred. She hasn't learned those things yet. So he's like, ah, yes, this is a teachable moment. Okay, I'm going to roll with it. Because that's really what he does. Like, he he always just kind of rolls with it. He's he's a smooth operator. That is true. Um, apart from comics, you're you're also a novelist. Uh, you're, uh, you released uh, The Alchemy of Being 14, and uh, you're planning a sequel, correct? Yeah, so I... The Alchemy of Being 14 is actually what got me the Marvel gig. Um, it is a self-published young adult fantasy novel. Um, so if people go read it now, it's very rough. <laughs> there are errors. It is self-published, and it's my debut novel. Um, and it somehow by just a really extraordinary amount of luck. Um, also got me an agent, Greta Moran, who works at the Beth Vessel Literary Agency in New York. She read that and wanted to um, represent it as a series. It's a six book series that I'm working on and would have continued to work on because it's very close to my heart. Um, even without representation or marble happening, um, and the sequel is called The Divinity of Hitting 15, and I'm working on it right now. And we are going to take alchemy plus divinity and start, you know, trying to submit it. So that'll be to trade publishers, so that'll be an exciting process once we get there. That's fantastic. Um, the forward to the book uh, by Sarah Davis talks about a time that you and, uh, uh, you and a friend got involved in the aftermath of a police shooting in California. Uh, true story? It is a true story. It was in Anaheim, and it was my last few months in L.A., and I wasn't working at the comic book shop anymore, so I felt kind of untethered. And, you know, L.A. was – I was there very briefly, um, you know, just under two years, but it was my sort of introduction to – the perils of the modern world, um, and kind of a baptism by fire trial situation where I was encountering things that I had never considered before. So we were, and this is Sarah David. She's the editor of broadly right now at vice. I'm very proud of her. Um, and she's one of my dearest friends. And, we were on her couch at her house watching live news footage of a protest that was going on about half an hour away from us. So we just looked at each other and we were like, we, we need to go. We need to be there. This is important. We, we need to take a stand. Um, so we went there and I think most of the official organized protests had ended by the time we got there. But um, there was still a lot of unrest and a lot of unhappiness because what had happened just a few days before is that they had gone into a man's yard um, and accused him. It, it was actually his birthday party, I think, and accused him of being an illegal immigrant. Um, and he reached for something um, and they shot him in front of his whole family mm -hmm. at his own party in his own yard. And also he is a citizen. <laughs> he ended up being a citizen. So it was just a really tragic thing to happen. Um, and people were 
justifiably grieving and upset and angry. And I don't know, it, it was a formative experience that protest. They had immigration vans there. Mm-hmm. There were police officers with SWAT gear and, and you know, full riot gear. That's, I mean, that sounds like scary stuff. It, it is. Yeah. I'm, I'm more frightened of it now than I was then because mm-hmm. how, uh, like how, how long ago was it? Um, gosh, I guess like four years ago, maybe so the, four or five years ago. Okay. So this would have been right around like uh, Ferguson then. Roughly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It preceded that by, yeah, not a long amount of time, but mm-hmm. it's for me that marked the beginning of uh, an awareness <laughs> of these things. Sure. Um, like my, my time in LA, I had been very insulated in, growing up in Mississippi because I came from like a school that was predominantly black and a community that was predominantly black. And when you don't see that same type of thing happening in those communities. Um, so it was just really eye opening. Um, have you, have you moved around uh, a lot in your life? I have, I've lived in a lot of different places. Uh, started out in Mississippi and then my parents moved to Texas. Um, from there I went to college in, uh, Hempstead, New York, just outside of New York city. Um, then LA, then Montana. Um, yeah, a lot of places. <laughs> I'm in Baltimore now. Would you would you say you're generally you know kind of nomadic? Do you do you like you know do you feel like you want to put down roots at some point, or or do you kind of like you know pulling up stakes every uh, few years? Um, no, it's exhausting. I would definitely. I feel like I've been trying to put down roots since I left Mississippi. Um, and you know, we moved when I was like 14 or 15 or so. So I finished out high school in Texas, but, um, and just shot out of there as soon as I could to go off to college. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's a strange feeling because the home that I know in Mississippi doesn't really exist anymore. It's, it's expanded. It's been developed. It looks different. And I'm probably also just kind of like sugarcoating my memories of it. So there's nothing that feels like home the way Mississippi did. But now I tend to find it with people like my parents feel like home. My partner feels like home and, you know, the place wherever I am is almost inconsequential compared to that feeling. Baltimore, that's where that uh, Universal FanCon was supposed to be this weekend, right? Yes, yes, it is. That was supposed to be this weekend, and now instead there's going to be Y Comic Con, um, WI Comic Con, hosted by Nerds of Color and Black Heroes Matter. And I'm actually going to be um, co-hosting a panel on comic writing. I'm, I'm pretty excited. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that was... Uh, I, I woke up and started seeing all the tweets about that, but it got canceled. And I'm like, wow, how does that even... The week before. It's, yeah, it's a pretty bizarre situation. And there's been some investigative 
article that came out today that I'd like to get into um, when I get the chance. But mm. yeah, just so strange. So, so soon before um, it was supposed to actually happen and people were understandably very upset about it. And, you know, especially mm. ones who didn't get their refunds because not everybody did. Mm. Had you been looking to, had you been looking to go prior to last week? No, I, I didn't even know that Universal FanCon was happening. So mm -hmm. when I have a deadline, I, I put horse blinders on and I just kind of disconnect from the outside world and current events and what's happening because it's so easy for me to get caught up in the news and get really distressed about what's happening. Sure. Um, so I have to kind of ration my my intake of the world outside what I'm writing. Um, and I had no idea Universal FanCon was happening until it was not happening. <laughs> and then everyone knew it wasn't happening. And then everybody knew. Uh, so on April 16th, you announced that you signed a contract for your first original comic series. Um, obviously, uh, you know, the announcement comes when it comes, but uh, you know, how far out do you think you, you are from actually being able to let the cat out of the bag? Uh, pretty far out still. And I mean, that's saying something because I, I've already been working on it for months. I signed that contract months and months ago, but I do tend to keep quiet about these things because um, I'm a firm believer in jinxes. So I, I won't say anything until the last possible moment, but I, I tweeted about it that day. Mm -hmm. I wanted people to know because I also talked about the scary discovery of freelance taxes and my 0, 0.00 bank account balance. And I didn't want people to feel sad for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was like, oh, and by the way, I signed a contract for my first creator own. So um, yeah, I it's been one of the greatest joys of my life working on it and I can't wait until I can talk about it. Uh, that's great and I look forward to hearing about it. Um, what's some stuff that is coming up that you can talk about? Uh, you've got a story coming up in Bolt's Cold Classic uh, book, right? Yes, I do. And it's called Pea Break and I'm really excited they let me call it that. <laughs> it was so fun to write um, and this whole the whole cult classic universe is just a tremendously amazing project with so many good people attached to it. And it made me just overjoyed that they asked me to participate in it. That's great. Uh, what do you do when you're not writing comics? Uh, write my book. <laughs> write some more. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's literally my, my every, my every day, Every weekday I write and I have sort of like a priority list where the stuff with deadlines comes first. And when I've cleared that, I work on my book. And I I write for fun too, like on my own time. I'm still writing fan fiction or blogging or that kind of thing. So it's it's constant. Do you do you block out specific time like I'm gonna write from here to here or it's basically just, you know, all day it's it's pretty much all day I'm trying to be healthier about it because I used to do just really intense crunch mode sessions with myself where I would go for 
as long as I could, writing as much as I could without eating, without taking breaks. And that's not healthy. That's no good. Especially since, you know, this is my life now. I want this to be the rest of my life. I need to do it in kind of a more healthy and sustaining way. So I treat it like a nine to five. I, um, you know, wake up, drink my breakfast and I, I will drink like a shake or something in the morning. And then I go, um, start writing and take a break in the middle of the day, get back to writing. And then at around like five to seven, depending on how much I've done. Um, and if I feel good about it, I'll give myself permission to just stop for the day and chill. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's, it's better. I'm still, I don't know. I have a hyper focus mode. So sometimes I'm still not good about like drinking water or getting up to go to the bathroom or anything like that because I don't feel the passage of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an ongoing battle, but I'm definitely better than I was. But you're definitely like day shifted. You know what I mean? Like you're not sort of like up at, you know, up all, up all night doing it too. Only, only if I have like a short turnaround on mm-hmm. something and I'm, I'm asked to finish something in a short amount of time, will I do all nighters? Um, but it's not good for me. I, I start writing stupid after I stay up for too many hours. And, uh, what are you reading when you're not writing? Uh, comics. I read so many comics. Actually, uh, today I just read all five issues of Matt Rosenberg's Four Kids Walk Into a Bank, and it was incredible. I have heard nothing but good things about that series. It really was so it good. Yeah, it it felt like watching the first season of Stranger Things for the first time. It felt like watching The Goonies, you know, just oh, wow. like joyous um, and but but not in like a sanitized way like it's it's a narrative about kids but it it hasn't been dumbed down um it's yeah just so good that's awesome um one thing kind of getting back uh, a little bit to alchemy of being 14 uh have you have you seen the the amazon's recommendations that come along with this book i have not okay uh, there, there are two titles. I'm, I'm going to read them to you, and uh, I want to see which one is more awesome. Uh, the first one is Undercover Amish Covert Police Detectives Unit Book One. The other is Code of Rainbow Colon. Both of these have colons. Uh, Soaring Flame and the Dragon Transcending Magimal. Magimal. Yes. What is a magimal? I imagine it's a magic animal. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I would say I would say the latter is is more awesome. I mean, no no offense to the Amish, not like they'll hear this anyway, but um, if you go out of your way to create a portmanteau of magic and animal for your book title, it's got to be pretty rad. One would hope. Um, Leah, where can people find you online? Um, I'm on Twitter. If you search for Leah Williams, I'll come up. And I also have a website now. Yay! It's Leah, L-E-A-H, media.com. And that has all of my contact information and social media handles, as well as where you can read all of my work. Okay. And uh, the next comic we can uh, see from you, is that the cult classic uh, issue? 
Yes, that is. I, I have no idea when that's coming out, but that's likely going to be my next thing on the stands. Oh, that's great. Uh, Leah, thank you so much for taking the time. No problem. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Monday mornings. Feel free to leave a rating or review and let us know what you think of the show. Follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grope. And for more great comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views, check out WMQComics.com and the WMQ Comics Facebook and Twitter pages. We'll see you next time.